Well, we never uh, speak about this much, these Hallmark holidays, but happy Valentine's Day. We have Cupid here, uh, right around there. I uh, heard yesterday's breakfast was great. Uh, somebody came up this morning, it's actually Chris Loya, she credit him with this. He thanked me and all of us profusely, giving us an opportunity to bring your loved one here to a candle-lighted breakfast. All is beautiful and uh, focus on the meaning of love. And you know, you can't think so much about love and commitment without thinking of a promise. We're in our sixth week. Uh, We're looking at uh, Jesus and all his multifaceted beauty as offered by the preacher called the book of Hebrews. He's preaching here a sermon, first extended sermon recorded in scripture, first in the um, uh, Christian church. We've looked at a number of aspects, and today we look at the promise. Jesus himself is our promise. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Uh, By the way, there's only one other place in all of the Greek New Testament where you read that word, fleeing for refuge. And that's when Paul, in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, escaped with his life. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. One evening, a gaunt, sad-faced man entered his doctor's office in Manchester, England. He looked terrible. His doctor was able to diagnose his terrible look, and he said, what's wrong with you? And the man said, I'm sick unto death. Doctor said, sick of what? The man said, I'm sick of the world around me. I'm sick of uh, all the broken promises. I'm depressed with the sea of empty promises. I find no happiness anywhere. I have nothing to live for. I'm ready to take my life unless you can fix me. The doctor said, well, this illness is not an illness unto death. You're just depressed. You need to get your eyes off yourself. You need to laugh a little bit. You need to find pleasure in life. I'll tell you what, go to the circus tonight and see the clown Grimaldi. He's the funniest man alive. And instantly... 
a wave of sadness crossed the man's face and he said, Doctor, don't jest with me. I am Grimaldi. Did you hear about the man who was standing on the edge of the bridge at midnight ready to jump? A stranger saw him and said, Hold it! Step back from the edge. Just give me five minutes. I'm a minister. Give me five minutes and we'll talk. With hesitation, the man stepped back from the edge, sat down with the minister for ten minutes, and then they both jumped. (laughs) Years ago on Valentine's Day, George Matheson asked a woman that he loved to marry him, and she said, yes, instantly. In fact, she said, I love you with all of my heart. I'll never leave you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. There's nothing you can do to push me away. Ten months later, he was diagnosed with a disease that was going to take his eyesight. When she found out about it, she broke off the engagement. She said, I can't marry a blind man. Matheson said, I I couldn't go on. I thought about ending it all. I thought about picking up the knife, but instead I took the quill and I began to write. You know what he wrote? A hymn that Christians have been singing for 150 years. Oh, love that will not let me go. For six weeks, we've been hanging with a group of Jewish Christians who are depressed, more depressed than Grimaldi. They've been rejected more than Matheson. They're frightened to death, not only from external pressures, but also internal pressures. They're ready to abandon the faith. And the preacher knows it. You see, at the end of the first century, the last half, there were a number of Jews living in Rome. And they lived in a neighborhood, a quadrant of that city, and they would buy and sell among themselves. They'd experience all of the benefits of the mercantile system of that great capital of the empire. They would eat together, they would dance together, they would celebrate. Remember, peace, the peace of Rome meant that you could buy into any different system as long as you allowed the peace of Rome to rule. And so what happened was that a number of those Jews were converted. They became Christians. Jesus became their Messiah. It was done through the preaching of Paul and the other apostles. And as they began to discover Jesus as the Messiah, they began to coalesce and they would begin to worship together and they would eat together and they would spend time together and they developed a house church. It was called an insula. And over the days and the weeks and the months and even the years, they would go outside to buy and trade. They would go around that city, especially in that quadrant of the city where the other Jews lived, and they would witness to their faith. And many other Jews came to know Christ. You know what they'd say? Where is your temple? Where is your sacrifice? I don't see you with animals. Where is your worship? And the Christians would say, come see, and they'd bring them into this house church, this insula, and they would be loved. They'd worship Jesus together and They would see the bond among believers. And you know the result of that? A riot. A riot broke out. And the Emperor Claudius, 
did what any emperor would do. He squashed the riot. He sent his troops in. He seized property. He banished these Jewish Christians from the city. He excommunicated them. They had to run for their lives. And the preacher knows all about it. And you know why we know that he knows all about it? Chapter 10 of Hebrews, he says this. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning after you came to saving faith, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometime being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, yet you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew yourselves that you had a better possession, an abiding one. You see, he knows, he knows their troubles. He knows what they've gone through. And unlike a lot of preachers, he got into the struggle with them. You say, how do you know that? Because of the pronouns. He talks about we and us. We have this steadfast hope. We have this in common. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. He knows how weary they are. He knows with certainty their uncertainty. And his greatest desire is to seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to redirect their eyes from themselves and to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. I mean, that's what this sermon is all about. I know a number of people have said to me, the book of Hebrews was always one, a little like Leviticus, I would start in, but I'd get real bogged down. Me too. But when you recognize the focal point, fix your eyes on Jesus. In the midst of that question, if Jesus loves me so much, why is my life so hard? If the answer is to fix your eyes on Jesus and understand the full disclosure of God in him, it's not so hard to understand. He begins with Jesus being the final word. And then as we've seen, he's our brother that we need. He's our builder that we need. He's our rest that we need. He's the counselor that we need. And then in this text, he talks about Jesus being the promise that we need. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the condition of the promise. Look at verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. 30 years ago, I was in Orlando, Florida, and I heard R.C. Sproul speak to a group of a lot of people, a lot of Christians. And in that message, he said, you know, if I was arrested for my faith, and I was banished to some prison cell for the rest of my life, and my captor said to me, you can have one book that you can have with you, one book, it would be the Bible. You know, and every Christian who thinks about it would say, yeah, I'll take the Bible over War and Peace. I'll take the Bible over that devotional. But then he went on. He said, if I had to have just one book of the Bible, only one book in the Bible, I'd take the book of Hebrews. That's what R.C. said. I'd take the book of Hebrews. Why? Because it contains all of the essence of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then he went on. If I was given one chapter of one book in the Bible, I would take Genesis 15 
Because in that one chapter is contained everything you need to know about the heart of God. And you know, the preacher must agree with that. Because you know what he does? After four chapters of not mentioning Abraham, he's back to him. He's talking about the promise and he turns their attention to Abraham and he reviews his story. Remember his story? God calls this stargazing pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, which is southern Iraq, to leave everything that he knows, his father's household, and go to a land that I will show you, the Lord says. And he does. And you know what happens to him when he gets to the land that God shows him? He is depressed. He's lonely. He's discouraged. He's anxious. And what does the Lord do? He comes to him in the midst of his anxiety. And he says, Abraham, I am your shield I am your exceedingly great reward. And you know what Abraham says? Because he has chutzpah. He says, prove it. You say you're my exceedingly great reward. Prove it. You say that I'm your shield. Well, will you please prove it? And the Lord does. The Lord gives him two proofs. First of all, he says, go outside and look up into the sky. See all those stars up there? Try to count them, if you will, because all of your descendants will be greater than all of those stars. You know, in antiquity, there's one greatest blessing that anyone could give another, and that is the blessing of descendants. The Lord says, I will prove it to you because I will make from you a nation of people that cannot be numbered. And you think about all of the religions that have Abraham as a father. Christianity, Judaism, Islam. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He doesn't give him one proof. Descendants. He also says to him later, he says, I want you to get five animals. And I want you to cut three of those animals in two. And I want you to lay the pieces on an altar, one on one side, one on the other, with a space between. You know what R.C. Sproul said? If I was given one verse of one chapter of one book, it would be Genesis 15, 17, which says, And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the sacrifice. You see, in ancient times, if you wanted to make an agreement with someone, you didn't shake hands. You didn't sign a contract. You took a knife and you killed a sacrificial animal. And you laid half of the pieces on one altar and half on the other. And then both parties that were making the agreement would walk in a figure eight between those pieces. And by doing that, what you were declaring is, if I break my agreement, let what happened to this animal happen to me. And that's what the Lord's saying. Not only will I give you descendants, but may I die if I do not make good on my promise. 
If I break my promise to you, let me be cut in pieces. Second, notice the character of the promise. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, you know what the preacher's doing here? He's moving his audience forward by seven chapters. He's going from Genesis 15 to 22. Remember what happens in Genesis 22. Abraham now has an heir, his own son. Not the son of a servant girl, the son of his wife, Sarah. Miraculously, there is no biological reason why those two old people could produce a child. And then the Lord says to Abraham, I want you to take that son, Isaac, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. So the Bible says he gets up early in the morning. He and his son and servants load up a donkey and they head toward Mount Moriah. And on the third day, they get to the camp and Abraham says to his servants, I want you to wait here. My son and I are going to go over to worship. And on the way up to Mount Moriah, the adult son of Abraham, the adult son, thought to be around 30 or so, says to his father, Father, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, we got the knife, but where's the sacrifice? Remember what he says? The Lord will provide. And when they get to that mountain, Moses takes the wood, or Abraham takes the wood and he stacks it, he builds the altar. He ties his adult son and lays him on top of the wood. He raises his knife. He's ready to thrust it into his son's chest. And the Bible says, suddenly the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven and says, don't touch him. You know why? Do you know why God said don't touch him? Because the Lord provided Abraham looks over in the thicket and there's a ram. And so he takes the ram as a substitute and offers the ram instead of his son. You see this? At every point of his despair, God shows up and joins him in it. And then immediately after he sacrifices the ram, the Bible says... The Lord spoke to Abraham a second time saying, By myself I've sworn. Let me ask you something. Maybe if you're a guy, you might have done this more than a girl, I don't know. But did you ever say to somebody, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? I mean, did you ever do that? A pinky squared? uh, Get blood going from your finger and... What was that? I mean, that's kind of sick. 
cross my heart? Hope to die? Stick a needle in my eye? What's that about? You're making an oath. In fact, what you're doing is you're swearing by the thing that is greatest in your life, your own life. You're saying, unless I keep my promise, may I die. You know what the Bible says? The preacher saying to these people who are asking the question, why is life so hard? He's saying, God did that for you. God promised to cut himself into pieces. Now, I would remind you in Genesis 15, there weren't two parties that walked through the pieces. Only one walked. It was God. Get this. I'm going to make an arrangement with you, Abraham. We're going to have a deal here. And yet Abraham can sit on the sidelines and watch God go through the pieces. Only God made that promise. But God didn't stop there. Thirty years later or so, he takes him to Mount Moriah. And he provides a sacrifice instead of Abraham's son. You know what the preacher thinks of this? He's so caught up that he uses two words that are never used anywhere else together in the New Testament. He says, because of God's unchangeable character. Those two words are never used in the New Testament together. Unchangeable character. What's he mean? Absolute resolve. Because of God's absolute resolve, we have this hope. You know what he's saying to these wavering Christians? When God makes the promise, He doesn't give one sign. He gives two signs. And two signs to those Christians living in Rome, they would know what that meant. The number two in the Bible is a number of witness. If you're going into court and you're promising something, you had to have two proofs. But you know something? God doesn't just provide one proof or two proofs. He provides three proofs. You say, what's the third? 2,000 years later, God let that knife fall. Not on a ram. Not on a man's son. On God's own son. Now think of the difference between the God of the Bible and every other God of every other religion. Every other God of every other religion says, you must sacrifice to me. Our God says, I have sacrificed for you. My guarantee is not your doing, it's my own doing. I've sacrificed my own blood. And then third, notice the certainty of this promise. Look at verses 19 and the beginning of 20. We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. See what the preacher's saying? Do you see what the preacher's saying? Our hope is not a thought. Our hope is not a wish. Our hope is not a feeling. Our hope is a person who has passed through the pieces. He's the one that's taken the knife. The one who makes the promise, keeps the promise, for He is the promise. And the promise is a person and His name is Jesus. 
That's what this preacher is saying. We have a promise, and his name is Jesus, and our promise is him, and he's alive forever. So what's the preacher saying? You're depressed. You feel rejected. You feel uncertain. You feel unloved. Don't you know that the God who made you a promise is with you in it? And then the preacher concludes this part of the text with two metaphors. Two metaphors for Jesus. And you know something? Probably not two metaphors that you think about often, but you ought to. The first one is an anchor. Did you know that in the first century church, the most common and the most loved metaphor for Jesus was not a fish, was not the cross, it was an anchor. Now, if you want to get a necklace, put an anchor on it. What's the purpose of an anchor? It's to stabilize you in the midst of surface storms. Does your anchor go all the way down into him? That's what the preacher's saying. Jesus is our anchor. And if he is solidly stuck to the bottom in bedrock, it doesn't matter what's happening on the surface. Let the storms come. So he uses that metaphor, the anchor. But then he uses another one that's, I don't know, I think it's pretty cool. (laughs) You know, these Jews who lived at Rome would have known the problem. Decades before, all around the Mediterranean, there were these seaports. And they had a problem. Almost every port had a problem. And the problem was shoals and sandbars. And the problem was that the cargo ships couldn't come and bring their cargo in because they'd run aground and they'd lose everything. And just think of the economic loss. Just think of the deprivation of the people. It wasn't so much storms. It was sandbars. And so about 20 years before these people are experiencing this problem, The merchants in Alexandria got together and they decided they had to fix this problem. And they brainstormed and they came up with an idea and they built these little boats, these little dinghies, real light, no draw, no draft. And they'd send some brave soul out sometimes miles into the Mediterranean in this little dinghy And he'd signal to the captain of this large ship to follow him. And the little dinghy would know where to go. And so as the big ship would follow the little boat, they'd gain access all the way into port without shipwreck. Do you know what they called that little boat? A prodromos. If you had two of them, it was prodromoi. You know how you translate that? Forerunner. That's what the preacher's saying. We have a forerunner. We have a prodromos. And it's Jesus. And you know where he's gone? He's gone all the way through the curtain into the very presence of God. And all we need to do is just follow him. 
and he will take us safely, not to Rome, but home. And every one of them would have wanted to go home more than to go back to Rome. Our promise is a person. His name is Jesus. You know the great thing about him? He not only is our prodromos, he not only is our forerunner, he's the author and the finisher of our life and our faith. He hasn't abandoned you. He sticks closer to you than a brother. And when the waves are high and the storm is nasty, that's when he's closest of all. And he will carry you all the way home. That's a promise. It's not cross your hope and heart and hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. It's three animals cut in two, a ram instead of the sun, but most importantly, his own son, who said, I'm doing this for you. What struggle is greater than the struggle he endured? He joins us in every struggle. Think about that. Amen.